Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Today I am joined by two of my regular panel, freelance writer Julian Murdoch and Dr. Bruce Garrick. Welcome to the show, guys. Wow. Thanks for having us. So, for the last few weeks, uh, we've all been sort of in the throes of a new obsession, uh, Martin Wallace's card-based war game, A Few Acres of Snow. Today, we welcome Mr. Wallace to the show to talk about A Few Acres and uh, to discuss why we're all so hooked on it and uh, why Bruce felt so strongly that we absolutely had to do this show right away and it was the greatest thing we'd, he'd played in years and we had to play it right away. <laughs> that was roughly the tone of how we brought this topic up to us. So... I guess I wanted to, you know, Bruce, since it's kind of your topic, I wanted to start with you. Uh, what What is A Few Acres of Snow, and what is it that really clicked with you about this design? First of all, let me thank uh, Martin Walls for uh, agreeing to be on the show. Uh, it was very kind of him to do so. Um, the The thing that um, I, you, you know, and uh, Julian knows, since I mention it pretty much every freaking week uh, that I'm on, is that I really like... Uh, elegance in game mechanics and um, sort of clever uh, takes on things that we've seen before and uh, I was really surprised I don't get I don't get uh, I, I don't get t- surprised much but um, a few acres of snow was sort of this uh, very interesting combination of, of game mechanics that I'd seen but not put together quite in this way and um, I thought it was a really good uh, and clever uh, application of elegance and game mechanics to uh, to a different kind of uh, of simulation problem, and uh, I was so I was so intrigued by it that I I really wanted to know how and why uh, it came to be. So I thought, well, why don't we just ask the person who made it uh, some questions about it? So that's how we ended up uh, getting uh, Martin Wallace. But um, I don't play as many board games as uh, the two of you do because I don't. Uh, a don't really have the opponents, and B don't have the time. But uh, when I when I played a few acres of snow, I thought, wow, this is really this is a really clever uh, sort of hybridization of of game mechanics that uh, I'd seen before, and uh, put together in such a way that um, they kind of sort of they capture this they uh, the 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 they capture the subject material in a way that I thought really. The game mechanics sort of played their topic much better than than uh, most game mechanics do, and the theme was really represented better than most themes are. And uh, I know we had uh, we had a show just recently about um, or discussion about game mechanics and and why uh, why so many game mechanics seem hollow, and uh, few acres of snow doesn't seem hollow at all. It seems like uh, just with a, with a few things really captures uh, what it's trying setting out to do. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Now, if, if you haven't played a few acres of snow, um, it's it, it's a war game of the French and Indian War, uh, where basically, I mean, is it fair to say it's a it's a deck building game primarily? It's a, it's a bit of deck building and a bit of territory control, uh, and the the challenge then is. Um, I would say it's it's pleasantly asymmetric, where both the French side and the British side feel like they, they face very different challenges. And uh, I initially thought the the British had a very difficult road to victory. Well, now I'm increasingly seeing it's actually nicely it's really nicely balanced. Martin, how would you how did you describe the game when when people say, well, what's this game about when you're standing across a demo table? Oh, good evening, gentlemen. Um, well, uh, obviously it it is about what it's about. It's about the long war between the French 
and the British for control of North America. I, I kind of understand that some people are a little bit confused as, as to whether it's a war game or a Euro game or what. I just, I kind of think, well, maybe it is just what it is. It's just <laughs> a mashup of the two genres and it just steals a bit from each. I would like to think of it as just a nice, quick playing war game with elements of uh, economic elements in there. I mean, you said a couple things in some interviews we read prepping for this that that struck me as a little bit contradictory. So I wanted to dig into them a little bit. You have in the in the back of the the game, you sort of designer notes. You sort of talk about mm-hmm. how um, how you love Dominion and you've been playing deck building games and and you sort of give a very gracious sort of shout out, if you will, um, to that style of game. Um, but at the same time, I think you've said before that, you know, the theme comes first when you're designing a game. And those seem slightly at odds because the deck building mechanic here captures the whole supply line issue so beautifully. I mean, it's one of the the most interesting connections of theme and and uh, game mechanic I think I've ever seen where it's like, oh, this is why you would use a deck building mechanic, right? It, it's the first time I've ever seen a deck building mechanic where I was like, it makes complete sense that I'm putting an order in and I'm going to get unreliable delivery. I think, I think the thing you have to understand about designing a game is there's a lot of luck. There's a lot of serendipity. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know how much you know about the background of the game, but the game really only came about because of a conversation on pub which actually uh, quite a few of my game ideas come about due to conversation <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was my idea to do a game on the subject there's a, a friend of mine who wrote the historical notes john ellis who was doing some research on that as part of another book he he, he was writing at the time and he just said you know, suggested that it might be a good theme for a game specifically because of the rivering connections because you know everything's connected by rivers and there are forks at lots of key points so um if it hadn't been for that I, it would have never occurred to me to pick on that thing so that, that was the first uh event that, that kick-started things so john did some research i did a little bit of research but at that point i had no idea that I was going to do a deck building game on it. I mean, the way I do work is I do the research first and then ideas suggest themselves. It just so happened that after doing the research and thinking about it and having recently played Dominion, that it occurred to me that that mechanic could be particularly appropriate to the theme. There's no intention to deliberately go out and design a apparently good game. It's just luck that it all came together nicely. When you when you went out to to design a game like uh, like this, I mean, what was the what what was the what, your friend said? Well, look at all the riverine connections and and, and look mm. how you know this can be a central part of the game. Uh, how how did that? How did you take that sort of thought and say, well, here's this game mechanic? Because one of the things that I um, that I read in the previous interviews that you had talked about was that uh, you know people always ask designers how do they uh, you know what do they come up with first? They come up with a theme first. They come up with a mechanic first. And you've said very clearly, uh, well, you think of the you know you come up with a with a, the thing that you want to make a game about the theme, and then you sort of fit mechanics to it. How did how did that come out? It's very difficult to describe how that happens. It's one of these things where it's why the reading is so important. You do the reading, you think about it, and then ideas just pop into your head um i mean what you try to do when you're designing a game is take out or try and isolate the key points um the key elements that you need to 
uh, simulate to a degree and just kind of roll ideas around your head about how you can kind of combine those elements. I mean, to be honest, where I actually started with a few acres of snow, my actual starting point in terms of uh, kind of mechanics was to imagine it as being a game set in space. Huh. Because you, you've kind of got connections between individual points, which you can think of stars with star lanes between them. Uh, you've got the idea of space fighting at a great distance from your home planet. And actually, with the in the reality of combat at the time was, pretty much whenever one side brought in siege, uh, siege um, artillery, they won, which to my mind was exactly the same as deploying a Death Star. <laughs> You've kind of got all of these connections to space warfare. So that kind of gives you a start, you know, and I... It's, you know, this this period of time, it's not regular warfare. It really is a highly unusual situation. And I can't think of many other other, other, other historical situations which have this same range of elements in. But as I say, if, if you ask me to pin down at what point did the deck building mechanic come into play, I have absolutely no idea. It's just one of those things, it pops into your head. Um, that's there's, there's, there, there's no magic to it. It's just... When you're a designer who works on a lot of games, you, you just it's just the way you train your mind to think that ideas suggest themselves to you at random points during the day. Usually first thing in the morning when I'm thinking about getting up. Now, do you ever like go back and question that, that first bit of inspiration and, and think, well, maybe it shouldn't be a deck-building game at all? Or is that something where you just sort of trust that initial instinct and then build from that foundation? Um... What I find is that uh, one common pattern is when I embark on a new design, very often I will reuse some older mechanics. Um, and invariably what happens is the, the older mechanics are not suitable. But by going through the process of actually designing a game, putting it out on the table and playing it, you get a better idea of the direction that you want to go in. Uh, it's difficult to give specific examples, but this has certainly happened before. So you know, it might be, you know, I years ago I did a game that heavily used the mechanics from uh, Age of Steam, but it didn't work out. But having gone through that process of looking at what things did need to be um, simulated in the game, then new ideas pop into your head. But, I mean, to return to a few acres of snow, I think the key thing is, I think, well, as you can see from the number of games that have been published that use deck building, it is a particularly strong mechanic. I mean, this is a really good idea. Um, and it's got all sorts of applications. Yeah, well, I right. think the the um, sort of de uh, card play, um, card-driven games in general, and, and this is, I mean, I, I don't know, I guess this is a, this is a combination of a, of a deck building game and a card-driven game. But uh, the idea of taking a, a, a deck of playing cards and putting some historical events and historical flavor and then using those to drive some kind of gameplay, I mean, I think that's ingenious. I mean, that, it really just allows you to bring in pretty much any topic and kind of weave it into your game mechanics uh, for, for pretty low uh, sort of cost in game mechanics. It's certainly a very good mechanic. It it has its limitation, and what I'd like to think in a positive sense is that what the board does to move it away from Dominion is that in Dominion, everything you're doing is affecting your deck of cards. 
So in that sense, it's kind of two-dimensional. Adding a board, the actions you've got can either impact on your deck of cards or they can impact on the board. So you're adding an extra dimension. Right, and it bring it brings a whole new level of resource allocation because you know you know if if good strategy games always involve these sort of trade offs right one of the things that's so fascinating about playing a few acres of snow is that you're constantly making this decision about am I am I going to invest in my deck with my my scarcest resource which is actions I only get to a turn uh, or am I going to be aggressive with those am I going to be using my turn to get more money etc and and ultimately sure you do have to build your deck to win but the decisions about how and when to do that um, are are really interesting right I mean they're really fascinating trying to figure out what the optimal strategies there I mean I'm probably have played I don't know, 60 games of it in the last two weeks on you, thanks to Yukata. Hmm. Um, and, and I'm feeling like I'm just starting to get a handle on, on different sort of core strategies about when to build and when not to build and when to focus on raiding versus when to focus on traditional siege warfare. Uh, I mean, all of those things are made much more interesting because you do have this sort of known end state where you will have to have a functional deck in order to get to the end game and win. As I said before, yeah, you, 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 the, the cards with the board, and well, I think the key thing with the cards as well is they're nearly all multiple use, and I think that that adds an extra layer of decision making, and that you've got cards that can either be used for transport or for money, or for their military use, and and I think that that adds uh, without that the game would be a lot drier, and I think I think that's an issue with maybe some of the older card driven games in that. Most cards tend to have one use. You can either right. use it for A or, or you can't. And right, and that's the problem with, you know, you run into that problem with Memoir 44 where you end up with a handful of cards you can't use. Yeah. Mm. But again, it was just, it's nothing clever on my part. It's just something that suggested itself. It just, once you decide you're going to use cards and that you're going to use this Dominion thing, it just kind of makes sense that a card has multiple uses. Some Sometimes games just, they almost design themselves. Once you've had that initial idea, everything follows from that and everything fits in. You know, you're just kind of tinkering at the edges. Um, you know, it's nice when that happens. So, so I'd like to explore that a little bit because I, I just read um, Fred Anderson's Crucible of War, and I think you're reading that too, right, Bruce? Yes, I have uh, uh, very slowly making my way through it. But I, I wanted to talk to you about... You know what? What statement is a few acres of snow making about the French and Indian War? You know how how is sort of like the historical record reflected in the dynamics that both the British and French player have have to work with, and the differences between playing those sides? Um, can you just talk us through a bit, like how how a few acres of snow utilizes and models the uh, historical record? I have to say, only loosely reflects it. Uh, I mean, obviously, you, you've touched on the thing about how the, the distance the, these two sides are from home means there's a delay between asking for things and them getting it. So that's the, the part reflected by the, the deck building. Obviously, you, you can also see the, the, the disparity between the two population sizes, which is why that the British have got more settlers than the French. Um, again, the, the way the difference between the two economies, the French economy is, is based much more on fur trade, whereas the British was um, based much more on growing crops like tobacco or, or sending wood up. You know, trading goods with with the home country, 
you've obviously got the disparity in forces. I mean, the British eventually decided to put a lot more effort into the war than the French. When William Pitt decided that, that you know, we were going to end this once and for all, that the French really never put as much effort into the war as the British. Um, I think also, I mean, it's been interesting. I mean, I, I, I read some of the stuff on the internet, and it's, it's quite interesting, one of the criticisms about the map not being terribly clear. And one, one of the interesting facts I came across when I was um, doing the research, particularly researching the map, was it wasn't long before this period that uh, this area of the world was actually mapped properly. And it was only after it was mapped that the British suddenly realized that the French were actually in the position of surrounding them. Up until then, they were, they were oblivious. You know, they knew the French were out there, obviously, but they had no idea that the French, by uh, coming down to the Ohio Valley uh, through Fort Duquesne, uh, and making way down to the Mississippi, would effectively encircle the British uh, colonies. So it was only after this, effectively, the first map um, of this area was made that the British suddenly thought, oh, we better do something about this, which is why they, they so keenly contested um, Fort Duquesne with the French. Um, so in, in a sense, the fact that you don't know exactly how the connections work, that you you know that sometimes you go up to Kenny Beck and think, oh, this is a dead end. Well, those things happened historically because <laughs> they, both sides weren't actually sure of the terrain. That's one of the more interesting moments I've had with the game was, I, I don't know whether it was game two or three, uh, when I was playing British and I, I realized that I was making this great march north that literally dead ends in one direction, right? I mean, it doesn't dead end for both parties. Um, and, and so you end up not only with having expended these resources, because I didn't know any better, uh, to sort of go populate this part of the world that was really going to do nothing for me except potentially serve as a raiding base, uh, but but that I now I had actually made my position worse because I now had this dross in my hand every turn that I had to get rid of. I mean, that was, you know, now that I've played a ton of these games, obviously now I know that, but there was this real joy of discovery in the beginning, figuring out where all those connections were. Right, and, and it, for me, it's been it, it's been really fun seeing how the game is sort of evolving as I play it again and again. Where I think you know the first game you and I played, Julian, was very much a um, it was also like we were both both playing Sim Colony, right? We were both sort of expanding our holdings and building up um, fortifications and cities, and but terrified it, to actually fight. Yeah, yeah, we were, we were totally we were totally like avoiding really direct confrontation, and then like two games later, we'd figured out. You know, my God, you can raid someone to death. And then suddenly, I think we played a game that just went on absurdly long as we just went in this all-out Indian war, uh, where we're both just burning through hands. And it, it's been really exciting to see how many varieties of French and Indian war you can create uh, through this game uh, as you try different strategies and sort of work with the uh, scoring conditions. Yeah, I I, um, I think that everybody kind of gets. As they get more comfortable with the game, they kind of figure out well, uh, how do you use these? Uh, how do you use these Indian cards and these priest cards? Um, and uh, it becomes kind of this this back and forth and bluffing and and keeping things in your hand to protect against raids. I mean, I think the for for people who are don't know the game mechanics themselves, I mean, there's a there's um, just the, the number of things you can do in a turn and have to sort of think about when you when you settle a, a location. You have to uh, you have to keep in mind the fact that as soon as you settle something, you're vulnerable to being raided there, 
and uh, depending on where the other player is on the map. So you have to have things in your hand that are going to protect you from being raided, and one of those things is a fortification. The other thing is the um, the actual card for that location. So if somebody, if if you uh, get raided in Quebec and you have the Quebec card, you can play the Quebec card to uh, to thwart the raid. But then you lose the card. So if you're trying to fortify something and the other person keeps raiding you, you're losing. You know, you think, oh, you know, I've got, uh, I finally have my Quebec card now. I just need to get a fortification card. And then you get raided and you lose the Quebec card. Your fortification comes card comes up, but now you no longer have the Quebec card, so you can't fortify. And, <laughs> and forts, by the way, uh, block raid. So that's the whole thing. And then you know you 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 get the fortification card. And you're like, okay, fine. I just need to get the Quebec card back. So you go, wait for, try to get through your deck to get the Quebec card back. And somebody raids you, and you have to block it with a fort. And then your <laughs> Quebec card comes back, and now you're, now you're so you're you're you're, you're um, uh, you know, you're responding to your opponent's moves in this way and trying to plot, uh, plot your own moves. Uh, and it's it's really it can be really frustrating, you know, in one sense. But uh, it's it's really uh, it's really rewarding from a gameplay standpoint. I mean, really, I really enjoy that kind of trying to figure out what to do, what the best thing is, and uh, uh, and then it, you know, often being thwarted and doing exactly that because uh, the other player is also sort of cleverly using the game mechanics. Bruce, you wrote something in in that article you wrote for um, uh, for quarter to three that I wanted to bring up, which I thought was really interesting. Which is, you know, this is a this is an odd conflict. I mean, Martin, you said that too. This is sort of there's never really been a, a war that sort of fought the same way with this sort of strange combination of, you know, raiding parties and. Uh, you know, economic uh, sort of cutoff strategies, and then these sort of prolonged sieges of fort locations. I mean, it's a very strange part of the world, and it's a very odd part of history. Um, and I can only think of like one or two games that have really touched this. We the People's uh, the most obvious to me, um, although Wilderness War is also great. Um, and I was sort of wondering to what extent you were attracted to this period precisely because it's so different than all the other places we play strategy games. Well, as I say, as I said earlier, it was only because a friend of mine suggested it, because um, it, it would never have occurred to me to look at this uh, period. And I think the key thing that he said was him saying, well, you've got this rivering thing going. And I, and I thought that it was that that kind of got me interested, because uh, it's a different way of, you've got a kind of different geography going on. Uh, in a normal war game, you have lots of areas adjacent to each other and your movement is fairly free but as soon as you have movement limited to certain avenues then that that creates a potentially interesting situation or at least it, it becomes a design challenge as to how you can do that in an interesting way so i think it was specifically it's all to do with the rivers as i say you know after doing a little bit more research when well, you find out well it's not quite as simple as that you know you've actually got three forms of transport you've got your rivers you've got the odd trail that you can get wagons over and then you've, you've got your coastal shipping um, but again that that actually adds to the game because it's nice being having that variety of movement modes within the game but uh, as to say it it, it wasn't it wasn't in a, a period of time that i knew extensively before I mean, obviously knew a little bit about it but I um, it was only when uh, as I say my friend suggested that I went up and did a bit more reading well I think one of the things that I, that that I had mentioned and I was thinking about it later is that you know there's there there are fewer sort of military differences to that you need to model so the game works really well 
uh, because you have, you know, raids versus sieges, you have regular infantry versus militia versus, you know, irregulars, um, and you don't have to, you don't have to spend a lot of time, um, you know, modeling small differences in training and morale and equipment and whatever that in another game uh, would really, would matter and it would, it would feel, um, it would feel weird, or it would it would feel like you'd shorted the the historical period if you didn't do that. And uh, I, I wonder now, in, in in retrospect, how much of that is because the uh, era um, sort of lends itself to that, versus how much we just don't really we're not really that familiar with the era, so we're not so um, you know so aware of those differences, and so that not modeling them you know we don't miss it we don't uh, think oh well you know we really you really needed to to um draw the differences between those two types of panzer divisions um uh, as opposed to in in uh, in a few acres nowhere you just have oh, okay you know those are, that's regular infantry and that seems that seems perfectly reasonable and there's no there's no further differentiation to be made um so i i uh, i think sometimes doing a a a, a less um a less known historical period uh, makes it easier to abstract some things because your audience isn't expecting detail uh, from that kind of game mechanic. But uh, I want—I actually want to talk about that a little, a little yeah. bit later, about in another context. While you're on that, though, I think uh, the whole—the whole thing with war games about rating units, having different unit strengths, morale, and so on—it's all done after the fact, and. I, when, I, when I'm trying to do, specifically with a war game, you're trying to put yourself in the position of the high command. And they don't really know too much about the quality of individual units. They just know they've got a bunch of soldiers, there's a job that they're doing, and they send them in. Um, war games tend to say, well, uh, you know, war game design will say, after the fact, well, this unit did particularly well, therefore it must have high strength or high morale. And the reality is, well, Maybe they just got lucky that day, hmm. uh, you know. So it it doesn't. It's I try not to put lots of little detailed modifiers in because the high command, the, the person at the top, isn't thinking about those things anyway. They're thinking more about the general disposition of their forces. Certainly, uh, at least you know what I've read of this conflict is. It, it, it's not one of the. It, this was not a conflict where like regiments made their legends. Uh, the type of siege warfare you're talking about, like the siege, the siege of uh, of Louisburg, uh, was actually it, it was it was a lengthy siege. It was, it was it was a hard siege, but as I recall, it was also a fairly bloodless one. I, I think it was just a it was just a textbook siege where the British eventually forced the got in a position where the French garrison had to capitulate. Uh, but it, but it was not it was not a place where units were standing you know muzzle to muzzle and and blasting it out and that that really very rarely happened. Um, this this just doesn't but, seem like a conflict that would lend itself to that. But that's 18th century siege warfare anyway. And in, in Europe, you you could pretty much time each side could time how long a siege was likely to take. And if the given that you can do that calculation. Unless for the side that's being besieged, unless reinforcements turn up at a certain point, they know that at some point they're going to have to surrender. So sieges don't tend to be bloody. Um, I mean, where it gets bloody, I mean, the particular example we fought William Henry is after the siege, when the British troops are leaving, when they're ambushed by uh, Indians. That's when the massacre occurred then. But sieges themselves, yeah, they're not 
terribly bloody because they don't need to be. It's you know the, the the attacker is just digging his trenches and just aimlessly right. bombarding, and um, the the people inside are trying to make their food last and hoping that reinforcements. <laughs> right. I mean, it's it's definitely you know it's easy to lose sight of the fact that this is you know pre-Napoleonic warfare, right? Where you don't, you're not dealing with you know true fluid cavalry, and you're not dealing with cannon, and you know not to the same extent that you were you know once you get into the 1800s. Well, yeah. Uh, go on. No, no, sorry, carry on. Well, no, I was just going to say. I mean, that that, that was it, it was the the North America made that basically impossible. Right. But I, I wanted to talk about. You mentioned sieges, and I don't think we've uh, we've really talked about sieges, and that's an another interesting part of this game. There, there's there's two elements of this game that I, that I find really enjoyable, and they tie in with the with the sort of card mechanic where you know one of the things you really one of the things that you really want in this game is you know you you want that you want your your deck to be a reasonable size where you can have a have roughly a good idea of what's going to be coming up that you can use uh, without having to sort through a lot of draws. And the interesting thing is military units are basically just dead weight in your hand. They they are they just take up space. But what you can do is you can place cards in reserve for use later. And uh, but you have to pay to get them back. Uh, so, so one of the things that I, that I've noticed a lot, and it's it's always really interesting, is um, the way sieges work. Like right now, I'm I'm playing a game against Julian, and I know I'm very vulnerable because he ha- he's playing the British, and he has um, an armada basically in in reserve uh, that if he pays to get out, uh, he'll be able to start a siege. And the the way sieges work are. Um, you know, there, there's a siege track, and you add strength points into that track, and if, you know, you manage to, you know, go through a turn cycle where the, where the siege til- is tilting your way, you win the siege. So your, your opponent gets, like, one chance to reply and match your strength. And, um, I don't know, I just, you know, it, it's just, the way the, the way the, um, the way the deck building ties in with the reserve and the way that links up with the economy uh, is just is just really satisfying for me. It's it's one of the things I you know I admire most about the game is you know just putting something in reserve is kind of a risk because you're trusting that you're not going to botch your economy so badly that you can't get those troops out when you need the most. There, well, there's pl- a lot of plus you're you're leaving yourself hugely exposed to ambushes, which is another I thought a great little interplay here that I thought was so interesting, which was the it, it felt very true to the to the form like if you're going to amass a massive reserve out in some field somewhere, right, you're leaving yourself hugely open for somebody to launch a, you know, midnight raid and wipe out one of your, you know, your artillery unit or something like that. And and you know this act of putting things in reserve really does quite literally leave them hanging out there on the board to be picked off. Yeah, I mean, the the way that uh, ambushes work, I mean, that was specifically trying to model uh, Braddock being ambushed uh, on his way to Fort Duquesne. Um, so I was quite pleased with the way that came out in that, uh, you know, the British there didn't have... Um, many Indians on their side. They, they didn't have scouts out. They, and they just blundered into an ambush and um, suffered badly. So that there is a lesson there, you know, make sure you, you've got scouts on your side. So one of the things, you brought up Fort William Henry, and, you know, from, from what I've read, after the massacre at Fort William Henry, um, Marquis de Macomb 
really became quite cynical about the use of Indians. He 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 never felt they were useful as as combat troops, really. And after that, he really, as I understand, it, he felt personally dishonored by what happened at William Henry, and he really, uh, at that point, sort of stopped utilizing uh, uh, Native American tribes as much as as much as he had before. Uh, but I do find it interesting because in this game. Uh, the, the French player really has a lot of incentives. The at least to me, the game seems to suggest rather strongly, I think, that for the French player, the key is to, at all costs, avoid losing the Quebec, Quebec and the belt along uh, the Great Lakes. And you can, you can basically pin the British player down uh, with raids, you can, you can operate a harassing strategy, but it seems very difficult uh, in this game to do the sort of um, trying to match strength against the British seems very difficult in this game. But ultimately, that does seem like the strategy uh, Montcalm uh, settled on. Yeah, I mean, I, I take your point about Montcalm. I mean, he might not have been comfortable with the use of Indians, but then you can remember a lot, a lot of these Indian raids weren't launched by. Uh, him they they were launched by the um french jesuit um french priests that they were quite instrumental which is why you have the the priest cards in there which add to raids you know they 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 uh, they were the people who were keen on using the indians to you know to further their own ends so in that sense i suppose it's quite a chaotic period of warfare where there's no single person in control or any any single strategy it's certainly the case, yeah, the French don't want to go militarily head-to-head -head with the British, certainly in the end game, uh, where the British got a chance to uh, build up their military forces. Obviously, they, they can have a go early on when they're slightly stronger. But yeah, the, the, the way the Indians work, it does, I'm quite pleased, it does recreate the issues the British had in that there are certain points that they had to fortify, which, you know, that's why you have Fort Halifax on the board. The British fortified there historically because to stop Indian raids. Um, the same with Albany. It was a real concern of the um, British settlers, you know, because there were so many horror stories about uh, Indian raids, Indian massacres, people held, uh, you know, captured by Indians. It was a really, I, I suspect for the, for, the, for the colonists, it was their single biggest fear. The map board, uh, when you say that's why uh, you know Fort Halifax is on the map. I mean, there's certain there's certain points on the map that you absolutely want to uh, to to have to control as the British, because if you don't control Fort Halifax, then you're allowing raids down into Deerfield. If you if the if the French get down there, so you really want to get up there and fortify. Um, and you know the the board has the structure that's not changing, and that um, you know Fort William Henry. Uh, there's there's a bunch of different points on the map that you know you always want to control. Yet despite that, the game seems to play. You know you would you would uh, you would expect that because these the board is so kind of simple and fixed that the game would play the same way every time, and it really doesn't. It really is very driven by who uh, who does what and in what order and in what you know who responds to what with what and. Um, you know, games all play just slightly differently, and I think that that's a really that's a, that's a big sort of success of the game is that um, even though there are only certain ways in which the two sides can interact, you know, small changes in the way you play 
lead to you know differences in the way that each game plays out so you don't always feel like you're doing the same thing over and over and and uh, Julian you probably can speak to this better than the rest of us since you you've played now apparently so many games uh, I, I was wondering I, I, how you've gotten so good I, I admit to a high level of addiction well I, I really actually want to talk about this um, to Martin as a designer um, you know the the dawn of playing these kinds of great board games on computer has completely changed my my ability to play them sure and, and it's easier to get opponents and all that stuff but also my understanding of how complex the strategies are because i mean i have right now nine games queued at yukata and mm. i'll just sit there and i'll just keep going through games and then i start new ones and so literally over the course of a week you can play 60 games of this without it actually taking anywhere near that amount of time as if you were actually going to sit down and play them one after and after another after another you know because you can play four or five games at once and and have you have you experienced that? Have you have you played the game online and sort of seen more strategies evolve because you can get more play tests? Um, I haven't actually. I, I I'm not very good with computers. I, I don't. I, I use them as a tool for doing um, working up prototypes, for communicating, and so on. But um, I I've never actually done any online game playing. Uh, really interesting. No, no. Wow. So it doesn't mean I'm not interested in, in it as a designer and I'm certainly working on a number of projects with um, various computer companies you know to put some games online um, but I'm not somebody who actually plays them myself I suppose the thing is when, when you say about playtesting you see the thing is there's no point now the game's done we're not <laughs> actually doing any more playtesting now yes I have made some changes in the second edition because there's the Halifax Hammer strategy, so I had to deal with that. And I did do some playtesting face-to-face mm -hmm. with players, but I couldn't have done that online because the face-to-face -face play consisted of a case of, right, okay, we're now going to change this rule. Let's <laughs> right, go, okay, right. now we're going to change that rule. And you can't do that with online play. So yes, I could go online and enjoy playing the game, but I, I couldn't actually do any active playtesting right, because course. I couldn't yeah. change anything. Yeah, I mean, I, I see that point. Um, it, it's just so interesting because one of the things that I've found playing games, whether it's on you know any of the big German portals or whatever, um, is the games that I previously have really enjoyed face-to-face, -face, you play enough of them and you start realizing, oh, it's horribly unbalanced this way or, right. oh, this you know there's two or three core strategies and it becomes a rock, paper, scissors about who gets where first. Um, and, and one of the things that I've enjoyed so much about A Few Acres of Snow is that... Um, what it's really let me do is explore all sorts of new strategies that I might not have tried, right? Because you're not necessarily making the sit down and play for two hours investment. Um, you can you can sort of try a strategy for the British that runs entirely up the left side of the map and see how that works, right? Or you can go right. in aggressively saying I'm I'm going to go for a flat out military victory and Quebec or Montreal is going to fall, um, you know. And and those have been really interesting because I might not do those things if I was playing, you know, in a, in a precious two hour session that I actually managed to get somebody to come over and play. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that and and this is something that uh, in all the game writing that I've done. Um, I've always kind of run up against is that um, I really enjoy simple, simpler games, board games, uh, and I'm I'm a little concerned, or not. That's, I guess that's the wrong way to put it. I, I've always been cognizant of how simple games are vulnerable to computer sort of deconstruction because 
um, in the past, you know, you might ha- there might be a, a simple game that um, uh, is really clever and you enjoy, and you buy it and you play against your you know gaming circle and group of friends, and maybe over the course of six months or a year or more than that, you you start figuring out, hey, you know, this doesn't really, you know, this this seems a little imbalanced, and then you kind of explore that, and then over the course of many playings, you kind of kind of figure out, oh, well, you know, this strategy is probably better than, you know, any other one, and then you figure out the game's imbalanced, but to get to that point, you've spent so much time, and you actually, and if the game is good, you've enjoyed it, that you don't really feel cheated, or that it's broken, or that there's anything, you know, it's just, it's just part of the whole uh, process right. of, of enjoying a game and, and game discovery, and with a computer implementation i almost feel like the game is going to get broken or it's going to be found out it's going to be discovered or you know uh debunked if uh if it has some sort of strategy like that and and and, uh before you know it somebody's like oh this game doesn't work you can always do this and now you know i i'm i'm coming out and i've been guilty of that myself in, in terms of some game reviews um but uh but that's you know I play a lot of um, Thern and Taxis. I think over the years I've played uh, on Brett Spielvelt. I think I've played something like eight hundred games of it, which is easy to do because uh, uh, you know each game takes about six minutes. But um, I, I think I've sort of figured out all the um, all the permutations and exactly how to play that game well. And so uh, against equal opponents, it's just going to come down to the to the to the draw of the cards and. Um, this is kind of the uh, case in point with uh, with a few extra snow. Where for the readers that or for the listeners who are uh, not familiar with what we're talking about, there's a strategy called the Halifax Hammer, in which uh, some people asserted, and they're probably right with the original rules, that a military strategy of uh, the British attacking through Nova Scotia was particularly powerful. And one of the reasons for that was that it was very difficult for the French to raid, given their initial. Um, their initial starting position, so the front, the the British could establish, uh, you know, sort of a, a beachhead, and then work uh, work inland with using uh, naval transport, and they were l- very limited in their uh, vulnerability to French raiding, which is the um, sort of the way that the French get around the British. Uh, uh, military superiority is that they, they force the British to keep defending themselves and 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 looking out for you know covering their openings that they can't devote all their uh, all their gameplay to just building up their military and 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 you know ramming it down the French throat and um, the the Halifax hammer strategy and there was a, a bunch of uh, uh, links on quarter th- uh, so there were a bunch of links on Board Game Geek and there'll be a link to, at the bottom of this podcast uh, about the strategy and and um, Martin. Uh, went through and there's uh, some rules tweaks that I think make it much uh, easier for the French to defend against that. But, um, but it, it kind of felt like, you know, I, I was, I saw that pointed out in board game geek and I felt a little disappointed in, not in the game. I felt disappointed in sort of the process. I mean, if I, if, if uh, I kind of felt like, well, I, I, I wanted to get to the point where I could kind of discover that. And uh, that sort of gets taken away because the, with so many people on the internet and people buying games and playing games obsessively, uh, they're going to figure that out way before I ever get a chance to uh, to enjoy that. So uh, simple board games, simple war games are very vulnerable to um, to having your sort of having your fun taken away from you. Um, and and I'm I'm 
glad to see, or it seems to me now, after playing more and more of A Few Extra Snow, that the rules change that I think are going to um, uh, are going to address the address the strategy. They're going to help, but they're not going to fix it because uh, I think as you, the thing is when you're talking about um, two player war games, effectively. Uh, you probably find nearly all two-player war games are broken at some level. It's just some people have never got to the point of working. <laughs> yeah, okay. Chess is, you know, theoretically chess is broken. There, there has to be an optimum strategy. It's just nobody's found it yet. I mean, this situation with a few acres of snow is it's always going to be broken because you're always playing with the same forces, the same cards are available. Um, and there is no fix to that. Uh, there is no way of solving that problem. So, you know, the, the changes I made tilt the balance a little bit in the French players' uh, way. So if you've got players who are not that good at the game, they're going to be able to play fine. But the problem is you, you could you, I couldn't tilt it too much the French way, otherwise the French could end up with an automatic victory. So the long-term solution, to my mind, is to put out scenarios so you mix things up because one of the things I found what, through trying to solve a problem was it's quite interesting if you change some of the rules thinking okay now if we change that rule how what strategies should I develop then uh, and effectively it's fundamentally the same way that Dominion works in that in Dominion you have a random selection of cards that come out those are the cards you play with and you make you, you, your strategy depends on what cards you're playing with uh, I mean, effectively, any permutation of cards in Dominion is effectively broken. It's just you never play with the two sets. You never play with the same set twice. And again, it's an unusual situation. It's like the war itself. Uh, I mean, eventually, the British did win with the Halifax Hammer strategy. You know, they went up to Louisbourg, and then they went to Quebec because they decided they wanted to end the war. They could have done that a lot earlier, but... They just couldn't be bothered. They, they just, they, nobody had the vision to do that because nobody has this top-down view. And also, you see, you, it's interesting for a player. I mean, it's like, in reality, you get one go at a battle. You know, Napoleon has one go at Waterloo, whereas a war gamer is in a position of thinking, oh, I'll have about 50 or 60 goes at this and <laughs> right. different ways of doing it. And <laughs> so, yeah, eventually, you, you, no, no real commander is ever in that position of being able to think, oh, I've got that wrong, I'll use a different strategy next time. Right. So it, that is really an artifact of the fact that it's a two-player war game. Um, so I'd say the only way to fix that is to keep changing the rules. So, you know, that's the plan. Could, so that, uh, And I've got a few ideas about how you can really mix things up. Can you um, share a couple so, of those with us? Um, oh, God, let's see. I mean, th th there were certain ideas that um, we de I decided not to follow up. For instance, we, I, at one point I was thinking about allowing you to ambush units that are in sieges, which really causes an awful lot of mayhem and does make uh, <laughs> Indians incredibly powerful. But, you know, you can try playing it that way. Um, the other way is having certain other locations which are automatic victories for the French. For instance, one of the other things I was thinking of is if the French get a um, city um, in um, Fort Duquesne, then they automatically win the game. So you, you give them another victory condition that they can attempt to achieve, which is historically justified because you can argue that's uh, the French linking up with the Mississippi and encircling the British. 
you, you know, you, you can mess with the cards themselves and, and change the number of cards available to each side. Uh, you could mess with the starting conditions. There's all sorts of things you can do to tweak the game to keep your interest in the game. Uh, Julian hasn't had any trouble keeping up his interest in the game uh, with uh, 60 playthroughs. <laughs> no, but, I've been uh, doing just fine. <laughs> yeah, one of which was uh, was uh, uh, beating me uh, pretty nicely, so uh, congratulations to him on that. Um, <laughs> I just kind of wonder how... Um, Julian, have, have you played it face-to-face, like the actual uh, the actual board oh, game yeah. at all? And yeah, how, yeah. How... That, you, Rob and I played uh, three or four games last weekend. Oh, great. And uh, is it how? How I'm just curious. How how do you feel about that? Uh, about its because um, I think the, the implementation on Yukata, just for the record, is is fantastic. How oh yeah, the... it's it's about as good as you can get. Um, yeah. you know, it's up there with like the 1960 version that's over on Game Table. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I it's a very satisfying game to play face to face because it's got nice bits and it's a big beautiful map and you know, phys- I always love cards. I think cards are awesome, right? I mean, and there's that that sense of feeling your deck build up and the satisfaction of shuffling. Um, the thing that changes most dramatically, and and I had made this comment when we talked about 1960 online as well, is keeping a running score, right? And um, I mean, one of the games that Rob and I played, we had to count like four times. We had to count up score at the end because I don't know, maybe we'd had one too many beers, but, um, it, it's not necessarily incredibly simple to not lose track as you're counting up the scoring at the end. Um, and certainly in the midst of the game, if it's a close game, uh, you know, if Rob goes ahead and upgrades, you know, I don't know, uh, Richmond or something like that to a city, um, I'm not intuitively knowing, oh, I just went from being down two points to up two points or the other way around. Right. Um, now, I, I'm sure there are many, many nerds out there who can keep track of all that stuff on their head perfectly and they would have a substantial advantage playing over me because a big part of Hugh Acres of Snow is knowing when to end the game. Because right. the end game condition is very much controllable because it's generally running out of cities or 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 settlement cubes, and so you can simply choose not to. Right? It's it's right. You, you're never in a position where you have to go develop something. You've always got another option of something you want to do. Um, so if you know that you're behind by five points, you won't. You certainly won't end the game. Right. Uh, you'll you'll do something else. You'll go try to win a siege. You'll try to do some raiding to get some of your opponent's points on your side of the board. Um, when you put it online that changes completely because now there's a little counter telling you exactly how many points you have and exactly how many points your opponent has. Um, And I think that that really does change the strategy in, in, in a face to face game. There's that level of uncertainty that I think it, it actually, I think makes it more enjoyable, honestly. Yeah, well, that's I mean, that's a part of, but that's part of game design, right? I mean, like the, the, uh, Ryan Knizia's, uh, uh, you know, like games like Samurai and uh, t- uh, Tigers and Euphrates, where you uh, part of the game, part of the game design is keeping track of what blocks your opponent has taken. Yes, uh, and it would completely change the game, and I think take a lot of the enjoyment of the game away if um, uh, if you had a counter that said, "Oh, you know, Black just uh, just uh, took his third, uh, you know, his third uh, rice block." And you knew exactly how many everything you could tell at any point who was winning. I don't think that I don't think that actually detracts from a few acres of snow. Um, it just makes it a little bit different in that. Well, a little bit different. It makes it quite a bit different. But um, there is this sort of you know, but your opponent also knows. So you just have to play differently to um, 
you know, there's no more bluffing. You can't sort of take your opponent by surprise and say, oh, the game's over. Guess what? I win. And he says, what? Although <laughs> on the first few games that I played, uh, that that exact thing happened because I wasn't really familiar with the rules that well. And, and <laughs> the guy, all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm looking for him to move and the game is over. I'm like, what? Why is this game over? He didn't win. And then I, you know, realized, oh, well, that's the, you know, I wasn't paying attention. He placed all his blocks and the game is done. Um, so I think it. It is definitely part of game design to force players to keep things in their heads, and um, and uh, in this case, I don't think it's it's uh, um, I don't think it's such a, a detriment to have it uh, change when it's played online. Yeah, I do think once we started playing online, I think I realized that that entire weekend, Julian, I'm not sure we played it entirely correctly once. <laughs> uh, every, every time well, I played, I was like, oh, there's another thing we screwed up. <laughs> that's that's part of learning a new game, right? Absolutely, uh, but but I, I do kind of miss the the suspense of the uh, the moment of truth when someone ends the game and uh, you know you know you think you're ahead uh, but you're you're not absolutely sure. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a very minor difference. I think I think by and large it's it's a very similar experience and and a very enjoyable one. Um, and what I'm amazed is free. To be yep. honest, when I compare it to um, 1960. Online board games. Do we game, game table? Game table. Yes, thank you. Um, when I compare it to game table, game table I think uh, offers these games for a very reasonable and, and cheap amount. Uh, you kind of makes it free, which is wonderful. But but I do wonder if that uh, works out. You know, I, I kind of wonder like, is Martin kind of getting screwed? How, how does this that deal? work out for Martin? How, yeah. How do you, yeah. How do, Martin, how do you feel about that? About I mean, I, I assume you were involved in 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 you know getting this allowing this to be licensed and how do you feel about the, the, the way this kind of plays out well the thing is i mean uh, i i get contacted by various people to adapt my games to things like that and as long as long if if the game's not been charged for then it's not a problem to for me because um it does help promote the game so there's kind of free advertising in there and also, I mean, it's very difficult to make money from online games anyway because there are so many that you can get for free that if you start charging, you just find people go elsewhere. Yes. So it, it's one of those things. How do you encourage people to pay for something? That, that, that's the trick. Now, I, you know, I have to say, in the future, that there are certain things I'm working on now which will be online where I, you know, I will have learned from the few acres of snow thing and say, okay, well, you know, how do you solve this problem about, you know, giving somebody something that they're happy to play and not charging them, but then giving them the option to pay something to expand on that um, on that game, you know, so that they're willing to um, actually invest in playing, you know, other scenarios or or whatever. That that's so. Yeah, it's kind of a learning experience with a few acres of snow, um, and it, it is it will lead to other games that will use similar mechanics. Uh, but those games will deal with some of the issues that occurred in a few acres of snow. I, I want to ask um, about a, a, a certain other set of games that um, kind of are like a few acres of snow. You, I read in an interview um, that you did online at some point. I can't remember where it was from. That uh, you had played a lot of Breakout Normandy, yes, uh, that's and, 
and that was a, a game that uh, you enjoyed. Tell me a little bit about that and uh, what you like about that game and if that any of that kind of back and forth, because there's so much back and forth in that game, and that game, I feel, is, is, is so great at forcing players to make one decision out of so many possible good decisions and it's it's almost like you have so many things you want to do in any turn and, and you you can only do one thing and it's 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 almost like torture um because if it were a, a regular board game you could just make these moves and and you're thinking oh gosh there are 10 things i want to do and i can only do one. what's the one important thing i need to do this turn and how that re- for you relates to uh, the way that a few acres of snow plays well so in case i mean i there's a lot of war games, I think, don't really do just to the subjects because the designers basically think, okay, I'll have a hack map, I'll get an order of battle, hmm. I'll put the counters down, and I'll have uh, movement rates. And uh, a lot of a lot of the wet things, a lot of war game design, people approach it from the point of view of how do other war games do it? That's how I'll do it, rather than looking at the actual situation and thinking, how do I reflect the reality of this particular battle? So when you do come across a game that does things in a different way and that you feel reflects some of those elements, then, you know, it becomes a much more enjoyable experience. I mean, and the thing in Breakout Normandy that I particularly like was the way that when units do something, they get flipped and they become weaker. So they become vulnerable to the counterattack, which was a factor in, in the Normandy campaign. Um, and in a lot of other war games, you know, your unit advances in, it remains just as strong after it's advanced as it did at the start. So mm-hmm. it's still yeah. the same problem for the other guy, how to deal with it. But in a, in Breakout Normandy, you're aware that if you do advance, you become weaker. Therefore, you have to keep units in reserve. Uh, yeah. And it's interesting, there's not many war games actually simulate the need to keep units in reserve. But it was a key part of fighting a battle of, of having a reserve. Um, and it's really not simulated that well. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, and that's in uh, I think in um, a few acres of snow. That's a very uh, um, your reserve is the is the cards that you sort of have um, in your hand that can uh, guard against what your your opponent is doing. But the, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure I know that in, I, I understand that in in uh, 18th century warfare, the idea of of a reserve in this sense didn't really exist. Oh no, you. you you had reserves in 18th century warfare because that's generally how you won the well. The general who had a reserve and used it well was the general who tend to one because the the reality of warfare is in, in a war game you have per, generally perfect control. The reality is in a real war, units which are fighting at the front you've you've lost control. So the side that's got a reserve that can march the key point at the right time mm-hmm. is absolutely critical. Um, but the thing is, war gamers don't want to play realistic war games because actually they find that they had almost no control over what was going on and get bored and go and do something else. Hmm. The, the reality is in a few acres of snow, I mean, the combat is highly abstract. And what it doesn't do is it doesn't actually reflect where your troops are on the ground. They're in your hand, they go to where they need, but you're never having to actually position them on the ground and give them a fixed point. Uh, hmm. They're kind of nebulous. It's almost like... Uh, you store them in some sort of computer cloud and you just draw them hmm. down need them. Okay. Uh, and it would be quite, I mean, one of the things I've been thinking about is could you adapt the system so you actually had to physically put the units on the board and how, you know, th- this is one of the possible variants for the future is having to put your units on the board so the other person can see where those armies are so that um, that, that would give you a whole new set of things to think about. 
definitely different. Yeah, oh, yeah. we're changing quite a bit. I I, I want to make sure that this gets into uh, the podcast because uh, yeah. I've been dying to ask you about it, and uh, I know we're 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 running out of time. But uh, you designed a game a few years ago called uh, God's Playground. Yes, and I'm fascinated to know how you came up with that uh, topic. Uh, with uh, I mean, did you read Norman Davies' book and and decide that you wanted to do a game on the topic? I mean, how did how did that whole thing come up? I, I actually uh, I missed the game. I I, I I haven't been following board yet. Just not able to do so with work, and uh, um, so I just missed the game. And then I ended up uh, actually ordering the game from Poland, um, which was uh, <laughs> a, a sort of an adventure in uh, shipping costs. Yeah. Uh, although the the comp the store I got it from was very nice and. Uh, delivered it uh uh quite quickly without uh, any fuss whatsoever but um how did that whole thing come up um you know how i told you i have a lot of ideas that come from the pub mm-hmm. well it just so happened that was somebody in the pub asking me to do a game about poland really uh, yeah it's a good guy. <laughs> games on demand <laughs> well wow. it used to be my drinking group on a thursday night there, there's a couple of historians in it. It's kind of been whittled down due to people moving to different places now. Uh-huh. But at that time, there was a gentleman who turned up, a guy called Nick Secunda, who was, used to be a historian at Manchester University. He's now, I think, at the University of Torin in Poland because he's of Polish descent. Wow. And he was quite keen on a game about Poland. He asked me to do it. He actually gave me some money to go ahead and do it. Huh. And I started doing the research and then he decided he didn't want to do it. So I gave the money back, huh. uh, but I'd really done some reading and this is, this is going back years. I don't know, two year, 2000, something like that. Mm-hmm. So a long time before the, the, the game finally came about and I did knock something together. I did get to the point where I'd done a game, but it was completely different to the one that, that has, uh, was published uh, a few years ago. So then I came back to the subject because I needed, when I was doing the tree frog line, I, you know, doing, I think it was three or four games in a line, and one had to be multiplayer, and one had to be two-player, and then there's one that would be specifically three-player. So I kind of fixed on God's Playground, because I thought, what subject have I already done some research on, that I've got the research material that I can reasonably quickly turn into a uh, board game just using wooden pieces? So actually, he was reusing a scene that I'd looked at many years before. Um, and it just so happened, it just turned out to work quite well as a three-player game. Yeah, that's uh, that's something that um, three-player, the number of, there are a surprisingly number of good three-player games. And uh, uh, if I ever am able to get this um get this game up and running and and uh, it's going to it's going to cause a little bit of a problem because uh, I'll have to break out the Polish uh rules and translate them for everybody and uh and they nobody will be able to refer to the rules uh in the middle of the game except for me so uh that'll I guess give me a... the English rules from the uh, Treefrog website Ah they they There's... should be almost identical although I've never looked closely at the Polish version Hmm. Okay, uh, maybe I should do that. Then I can. Uh, the well, that takes away my advantage. Then, so I don't know what I want to do that. Yeah, actually, somebody on uh, Board Game Geek has actually rewritten them all in English as well. So mm. somebody's yeah. already done a translation to compare against. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> well, then, then there we go. So maybe I will do that. So it's the um, greater internet nerd theory, or somebody else has already figured it out. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, good. That's. Uh, I was just. Well, I was just very curious about that since that's, I don't see that very much. And there's a there's a huge website uh, or who would you, there's a website devoted to it in Polish and uh, 
it's uh, it has it was game of the year. I just my copy has a big sticker on it that says game of the year 2011. So, um, how did uh, did did, uh, did the tree frog um, contr- you know you license that out to a Polish publisher or how did that how did that go? Uh, yeah, it was um, yeah, it's Alex Poland. Uh, yeah, they contacted me, asked if they could do a version. I said, yeah, fine. They paid me some money. They went ahead and did it. Um, okay. I didn't get involved in the development. Uh, mm-hmm. I, left, I left that up to them. So it's a pretty straightforward deal. But I think there's very few games on the history of Poland. Um, yes, that's for sure. Yeah, and it's a shame, actually, because it, it is once you've done the reading, you realize it is a unique country. It has its own history. And there are, I, I certainly think there's a, a lot of lessons in Polish history which are, are applicable nowadays. It would, be, it would be nice if more politicians knew about the history of Poland because there's a lot of warnings in there. Um, but um, yeah, it's, and there's a lot of funny bits as well. They, they, it's just really odd, odd history, only in Poland. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, if they enjoy the game, that's great. So. It seems like basically every every one of your games starts with a drunken conversation with a historian. Uh, how? Not, yeah, yeah. How, how are you friends with so many historians? There's a gentleman who used to live around here. I, I got introduced to a group of people through a friend, and there's a gentleman who um, used to live around. Unfortunately, he died last year. A guy called Paddy Griffith, who was uh, used to teach at um, Sandhurst, and he's done a couple of books. So he lived in, up in Manchester, and he used to run a monthly uh, discussion group. So through him, I got to know a guy called John Ellis, who I, I still see at the pub, who did the, the notes on, um, came up with a few acres of snow idea. I say Nick Secunda was part of the same group. It's just, it's just a group of people who, some of them are war gamers, some of them are historians, and some of them are a mix of, well, they, they're pretty much all a mix of the two, you know, they they they, they kind of mix gaming with study of history. And a lot of game design ideas just come out of these conversations. Um, one or two have come out, yeah. Um, I think, um, yeah, it's it certainly, I mean, I you know, okay, I, I do a bit of reading and I know a little bit about history, but the, the, the kind of guy, these other guys, are frighteningly intelligent and know way more about these things than I do. So I, I kind of, back on on their intelligence and pick their brains and for ideas and and so when you're deciding like how you're going to a, to model a, a subject or something i mean are, you're going around to to your friends you're, you it sounds like you do you do a great deal of reading yourself but you're also uh, do you find you're asking them questions directly or do you go and have them sort of check your work at times like- uh, i'll certainly discuss an approach you know that that um you know, especially, I mean, it's like if you're dealing with the Napoleonic period, you might say, well, look, this is the kind of way the different uh, forces are interacting. In general, do you think I'm right? Uh, you know, so these these guys will say, well, yes, in general, this battle, for instance, was mostly about firepower, or in this battle, it was much more about command and control. I mean, one of the interesting things that John Ellis kind of, uh, is quite focused on is the idea of tempo in the battle. And it's something, if you can try and build that into a game, you know, the idea that that by forcing the issue, you, you can actually knock the other player off balance and that, you know, the, 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 temp, the speed that you execute your orders, that you, you run your battle, 
has an impact on the other player. And again, a lot of war games don't necessarily have the concept of tempo in them. So that's definitely something I, I picked up from John Ellis. And if, if I can build it in, I will do in some way. All right. Well, um, so it sounds like well, I, it's been a great discussion. I really hope we can have you back because, um, you know, certainly I played a few acres of snow. I've loved it. I've not played any of your other games, uh, but uh, you know, as part of getting prepped for the show, I think we ended up buying quite a bit among uh, our our group of friends, didn't we, Julian? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've got a copy of Steam here. I know Mr. Davio got a copy of Brass, so I think we've we've started we've stocked up a little bit. Right, and uh, Bruce, you're, you're going to be out in uh, the East Coast anytime? You're going to be out for PAX East, something? Uh, it's, a po- it's possible. It's, uh, I'll, be, uh, I'll be in New York, um, in um, New York City in uh, July, uh, working at ABC News. Uh, so um, maybe we'll, I'll have a chance to, to drop down there. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, 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 I wish, that, yeah, I definitely want to have Martin on again because there's so many other things I want to talk about. I, I actually played um, a number of, of Martin's games. Uh, a big fan of Age of Steam. Um, there's still a bunch of things I wanted to talk about, uh, which we're, I guess we're not going to get a chance to. But um, the whole there was a comment that um, Martin you made in one of your interviews about how um, you uh, you like games in which players can't directly hurt each other. Um, that uh, that much, or you limit players' ability to hurt each other badly, uh, which is a topic I want to I want to kind of explore at some point because I think that's fascinating. But uh, yeah, I played Age of Steam. Um, I played uh, Brass, which I really enjoyed, um, and I know that uh, I well, Railroad Tycoon and the Steam is a, a the Steam that you mentioned, uh, Julian, is a, another um, sort of refinement on that whole uh, Martin's particular take on uh, on railroad games, which I think just is so amazingly well done so i would love to be able to uh once you guys get a chance to play some of those games is to have martin back on and just talk about all sorts of other uh games that he's designed for sure for sure absolutely uh but in the meantime uh i hope you've enjoyed the show if you've got a local hobby shop it might be worth trying to see if you can snag this game it's a great uh fairly briskly paced uh game for two people uh i'm certainly glad i've got a copy but if you don't feel like investing in a copy or you just can't find one, uh, the Yukata implementation is fantastic. And uh, look, look, for us, look for us there. Uh, Julian certainly is almost certainly play, playing a game, apparently. <laughs> um, so, uh, Martin, thanks so much for being on the show. And uh, thanks for an absolutely outstanding game. That's okay. I'm glad you enjoyed it. When is it being reprinted, by the way? Is it, there's another, I assume there's another printing, the second edition that you're talking about. Yeah, there, there's, uh, there's going to be a re- I've not made it announced officially um but there will be a reprint um it should be coming out in march Great. when copies will be available in america really depends on how long it takes for them to get across the atlantic right uh, it is so, it is unfortunately pretty much out of stock everywhere i've seen yeah. i mean for, fortunate for you unfortunate for gamers right it's very <laughs> hard to judge how many copies of a game to print when I printed 7,000 copies, 7,000 copies of a two-player war game should be commercial suicide. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we're very happy that it wasn't. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, thanks for being on the show, and uh, thanks for the great conversation. Uh, say goodnight, everybody. Cheers. Good night. Good night.